and welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 12, Supersize Me. Today we're going to look at the role of the institutional church as it relates to our spiritual formation. This includes local churches, denominations, and associations, and related institutions like Christian schools and colleges. Last episode, we compared our modern local church experience to other deeply formative experiences, and we determined that, in general, the local church is not the center of our spiritual formation. Compared to other formative experiences such as early childhood, college, the military, marriage, or the early church, the typical American lifestyle conflicts with and works against our spiritual formation, and that leaves the local church unable to play a more central role even if it wanted to. So instead of being immersed in a local Christian culture whose specific purpose is to form each of us into the likeness of Jesus, the local church tends to be a place of pieces and parts. Corporate worship, group instruction, some socialization, and opportunities to serve our local communities. Well, is that bad? What's bad is that the average modern Christian isn't intentionally or purposefully being formed into the likeness of Jesus. We just aren't experiencing the deep end of discipleship. But we're integrated creatures living in an integrated world. Just as our minds and hearts and bodies are woven together in one unified human being, we exist in an integrated reality. In our current environment, we attempt to fragment and segment ourselves, and we attempt to segment and fragment creation and culture. For example, we think we can sleep with whomever we want and assume it's only an act of the body. That's impossible. The entire being, including the body, the mind, and the heart, is engaged in any intimate encounter. There is no such thing as the so-called mind-body dualism. We may talk about the separation of church and state, or how we need to keep our business life separate from our personal life, but neither is actually possible in the human heart. We're integrated beings living in an integrated world. Yet whether we're conscious of it or not, we segment our Christian activities from the rest of our lives. Because we typically don't create and live in a culture of spiritual formation, our discipleship comes in fits and starts, and we struggle to understand how our spiritual formation impacts the rest of our lives. Instead of approaching our discipleship formation journey with the intention and passion of, say, raising a child or becoming a successful college graduate, we struggle to find the time to do Christian things, and then we feel guilty about it. So instead of living lives ordered around deep discipleship, Our lives are ordered around other things, or perhaps nothing, and we gravitate towards events and one-off experiences to help us grow. Marriage retreats, parenting seminars, summer camps, different types of revivals, or men's or women's conferences. These types of events are fairly modern inventions, and they can be very good, and in some cases now necessary, but still temporary substitutes for living lives of spiritual formation. Plus, if we are intentional about our spiritual formation, we often make two wrong assumptions. We have some wrong ideas. Number one, the modern church is the cultural center of our formation. And number two, that our formation happens solely through our minds. Well, we aren't primarily thinkers or even believers. We're creatures of desire. We're lovers. Our roots are our hearts. I'm certainly not arguing against Bible reading or scripture memory or preaching or teaching. On the contrary, certainly the word of God is formative, supernaturally and uniquely so. The Bible forms our hearts unlike any book in human history. But why would we conclude that instruction is the sole or even primary driver of our spiritual formation? A child's heart isn't only formed through instruction. A marriage isn't grown only through instruction. 
Even many college graduates will tell you that they don't remember much about what they learned in class. Their formation happened through a combination of other factors, including relationships and experiences. So why would our journey into deep discipleship be that much different? If we still don't believe that modern Christianity unconsciously assumes that spiritual formation is largely an academic, intellectual exercise, let's think about what many churches do as a next step once somebody has decided to follow Jesus. If you've ever been to an evangelical church service and the speaker invites the congregation to accept Christ or follow Jesus or pray a prayer, what do they do next? Well, it's common for the church to welcome new believers into the family of Jesus by giving them a book. That's right. Someone has just made the decision to join the kingdom of God, which means they're a whole new person in a whole new family and a new citizen of a vibrant and conquering kingdom. Their soul has just gone through the most radical metamorphosis, and we hand them a book. Is this how new members are welcomed into any other formative experiences? How is a new child welcomed into the world? If born into a healthy family, they're ushered into a culture of constant love, affection, nurturing, and care. They're immersed in a brand new environment. Their arrival causes the entire community to celebrate and rearrange their lives for the child's formation. If you went to college, chances are you were part of some sort of week-long freshman orientation program. Colleges immerse incoming freshmen into the culture of their institution. After you were acclimated, you were constantly surrounded by faculty, staff, and other students. All types of experiences to form you into a successful graduate. Well, how about the military? Boot camp. You were immediately immersed in a culture that is designed to strip away civilian life and strongly encourage you to assume the characteristics the military wants to instill in you. If you survive boot camp, you are off to other training and other services. You're immersed in the military culture for the time you serve. How about marriage? I suppose wives would look strangely at their new husbands if, after they said, I do, the husband handed his wife an instruction book on how to be married. In New Testament times, it was common for the husband and wife to get a year off to build their marriage and form a solid foundation for their life together in their local community. Society granted the new couple time, new habits, community, and intimacy so that the marriage was formed properly. Today, we normally take honeymoons, a week or so alone together to enjoy the newness of being married. But in healthy marriages, even after the honeymoon, each spouse makes very substantial changes to their individual lives to create the necessary time and habits and intimacy and community to build a successful marriage together. In a healthy marriage, we purposely create a culture of formation so that husband and wife grow together as one and create an environment for their children to flourish. But when new converts are welcomed into the family of God in many churches, they are given a book and maybe a welcome phone call. Pretty sure this habit tells us a whole lot about how the institutional church sees itself its focus on making converts versus making disciples, and some very wrong assumptions about how our hearts are actually formed. Which brings us to the topic of institutions. America is a land of institutions. We experience them every day in one form or another, and it's probably this way around the world. A simple definition of an institution is a society or organization founded for a religious, educational, social, or similar purpose. So your local Walmart isn't really an institution in this sense, but your local community college is, as are daycares and schools, some nonprofits, some government agencies. We generally consider an institution to be an organization or group designed to contribute to our formation, be it character formation or educational formation or social formation. Marriage is an institution. It's the smallest one. It involves just two people, 
The family is an institution of various sizes. Sometimes we use the word institution to refer to other types of organizations that provide some sort of service or benefit. Your bank is an institution, as is your mortgage lender. We call them financial institutions. Your local DMV is an institution inside of an institution inside of another institution. The federal government is an institution with a seemingly endless supply of internal institutions. We love our institutions. We love starting them. We love feeding them. And we love growing them. And especially in Christian circles, institutional growth is very, very important to us. We supersize many of our Christian institutions. If we aren't supersizing them, we assume something's wrong. But considering the limited role the local church can play in our spiritual formation, the lack of clarity about discipleship, and the very strong evidence of a culture of malformed Christians, we need to take a very careful look at our beloved institutions. So here are just five challenges every institution faces, including those identifying with Christianity. Number one, institutions tend to drift from their original purpose and values as they age. According to Dr. Roger Schultz, Harvard began as an overtly Christian school. Quote, Puritans established Harvard College in 1636, shortly after arriving in Massachusetts Bay. Harvard's mission statement, given in 1642, was clearly evangelical. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. The Harvard motto from 1650 emphasized its core Christian commitment. In Christi Gloriam, for the glory of Christ. Over long decades, conservative Puritan ministers served as Harvard's presidents. End quote. It would be difficult to consider Harvard a bastion of Christian formation today. Many other Ivy League and older American universities were started with Orthodox biblical beliefs, but have drifted in various directions as they've aged. We often hear about mainline denominations in America. The term generally refers to seven historical denominations, such as the Episcopal Church and the United Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, USA. One article at the Gospel Coalition suggests that, although they're often accused of moving in a theological liberal direction, it may be better to suggest that they have become pluralistic, meaning they accept many different views that may or may not align with biblical orthodoxy. I wouldn't bother making the distinction between pluralism and liberalism. Either way, mainline denominations have departed, from their original roots, and that's caused various splits and new denominations to form over the years. I don't track denominations all that closely, but I'm aware at least three older and sizable denominations or associations that are right now considering splits over doctrinal and cultural issues. Lots of other notable institutions have abandoned their original Christian roots, groups like the YMCA or the Red Cross. Though they still do some work reflective of the kingdom, they no longer recognize the kingdom as the reason they do their work. Institutions tend to bow to social or cultural pressure over time, even if it means departing from their initial ideas. So, new institutions split off or are created to conserve those initial core ideas, and the cycle starts all over again. Sometimes it just takes one generation for the drift to occur, and sometimes it takes longer. But the cycle is pretty clear and pretty predictable. The second challenge of institutions... The larger the institution, the less personal it becomes. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, and Gen Xers come with certain characteristics, including a sense of independence and a healthy skepticism. So I'm skeptical of institutions in general. My bank is a large, well-known financial institution. I'm skeptical of my bank. 
They send me all sorts of emails telling me how glad they are that I'm a customer and that they treat me like a valued local friend, and that's ridiculous. I trust them not to lose my savings, but I don't trust them to even keep my personal information secure. I've been sent four or five new debit cards in the mail over the last several years because some bank employee left their laptop at Starbucks or they experienced some other data breach. I don't have a personal relationship with anyone at my bank. Every time I walk in, there's a new manager and some new staff. If I was wealthy, I'm sure the bank would work very hard to have a personal relationship with me, but as it stands, I'm not a person to my bank. I'm a very, very small piece of business. We refinanced our home a while back, and I asked the mortgage broker whether the lending institution that gave us the loan was going to service the loan, meaning would I be able to establish a relationship with this new institution. My broker assured me the bank would be my long-term partner. Well, less than 60 days later, they sold my loan to another bank. I'm not a person to the lender. I'm a digit on a balance sheet. In the U.S., the largest institution is the federal government. I shouldn't be baffled, but I am constantly amazed at the number of people who want to worship their federal government. They want their government to feed them, clothe them, satisfy their needs and desires, protect them from every possible harm, and all around make them happy. They put their faith and trust in their government. They worship their government. I don't think you could find a worse candidate for a god than a centralized government. You and I are literally nothing but a nine-digit number to them. We're a piece of data. So we have a triune god on the one hand who creates us, knows the number of hairs on our heads, and promises to care for us more intimately and carefully than any human could. And on the other hand, we have a huge government institution that doesn't know our names, doesn't know our stories, and can't possibly get to know us on any sort of relational level. And yet we want the impersonal institution to satisfy our whims and desires. Well, what about large Christian institutions? How about the megachurch? Is bigger always better? We love supersizing our evangelical institutions, but is this actually helpful in our spiritual formation? How can a Christian institution with hundreds or thousands of members help spiritually form the individual person? Well, the solution to this quandary was the small group. I like small groups. Jessica and I have been in them and led them for probably 25 years. But just like we need to understand what the local church is and what it isn't, we need to carefully look at small groups. As the West became more and more attracted to large churches and the megachurch experience, something had to be done to cultivate relationships among the members. After all, showing up for a worship service and sermon when you're one of a few thousand people makes it hard to build relationships. So the small group movement took off. This is where community, accountability, and discipleship were supposed to develop. I've always found this setup a little bit odd. American Protestants love our celebrity pastors. In large and mega churches, some pastors are paid simply to teach and preach. And our celebrity pastors have their internet channels, their TV shows, their radio programs. They have their books and their speaking circuits. Typically, these folks are professionally trained. They've been to seminary and maybe they have PhDs. American Protestants place an extraordinarily high value on the sermon as a part of our Christian experience and will pay for it, provided the pastor is an effective speaker and has the right credentials. We've somehow come to assume that the pinnacle of our spiritual formation is a weekly 30-minute monologue. We wouldn't assume that about any other type of formative experience, but that's the underlying idea in the hearts of modern Christians. But when it comes to small groups, where relationships, accountability, and discipleship are supposed to happen, these groups are typically organic, not really organized and volunteer-driven. Sometimes the church provides training for small groups, and sometimes not. 
Sometimes there's a pastor or church leader who has oversight over small groups, and sometimes not. Sometimes the church determines what material is covered in small groups, and sometimes not. American Protestants place a very high value on a winsome speaker and a 30-minute Sunday morning sermon, but we don't seem to place the same sort of expectations or value on small groups, even though that's where the real relationships are supposed to be fostered. We tend to value the institutions and their representatives, even when they're large and impersonal, over the small group, which is where we're supposed to be experiencing the delights of dialogue and interpersonal relationships and closeness. Yet the small group effort in some churches doesn't get much attention or resources or any sort of organizational focus. That's because the larger the institution, the less personal it becomes. So the church basically outsources its most formative efforts to volunteers. Volunteer ministries are great. I'm just noting that we aren't formed only through sermons and instruction. We're formed through a combination of key elements that are highly dependent on community, relationships, and experience. But that's not where institutional churches tend to put their time or their money. Many churches put much of their energy into the event of a Sunday morning worship service and assume that a 30-minute monologue is going to be the key driver of people's spiritual formation. That is highly unlikely. Challenge number three. Institutions tend to prioritize their own survival and growth over their members. Well, this has everything to do with ideas of power. As institutions grow and accumulate power, the elites who run them prioritize that power, even if the institution is failing in its mission or harming its members. In particular, men who accumulate power have a rather grim habit of becoming addicted to that power. And Christian elites certainly aren't immune to that addiction. When the sexual abuse crisis in the Southern Baptist Convention came to light, I reviewed the public report, which detailed some 20 years of abuses in the convention. The report showed there was a concerted effort on behalf of the elites to protect the institution and its power, even if it meant disregarding or mistreating the victims. Russell Moore, writing for Christianity Today, wrote, quote, The conclusions of the report are so massive as to almost defy summation. It corroborates and details charges of deception, stonewalling, and intimidation of victims and those calling for reform. It includes written conversations among top executive committee staff and their lawyers that display the sort of inhumanity one could hardly have scripted for villains in a TV crime drama. It documents callous cover-ups by some SBC leaders and credible allegations of sexual predatory behavior by some leaders themselves. End quote. The SBC isn't alone, of course. The Catholic Church is dealing with a decades-long history of abuses, and several other Christian institutions and groups have had major moral issues come to light over the past several years. I expect we'll see more reports from various institutions in the coming months and years, but I'm also sure there are numerous examples of power-grabbing, lawyering-up, intimidation, and executive cover-ups that we'll never hear about. The SBC and other groups are taking steps to heal and to prevent these types of abuses in the future. That's good. But as is the case with the SBC, the normal institutional response to institutional abuse is, you guessed it, more institutions. More policies, more corporations, more committees, more agencies, more oversight. Is this really a matter of needing more governance, more accountability, and more bureaucracy? Is there some dire shortage of systems and policies and agencies to keep Christian institutions in line? Let's just step back and consider the authority structures here. So in a local church, there are typically staff members who run and manage the day-to-day -day operations of the church. In a small church, that may just be the pastor. In a larger church, the staff can run into the hundreds. Either way, they form an authority structure. 
and there's some type of elder board or governing group. Whether it's a church or some nonprofit, there are certain expectations and requirements for this type of board. In some form or fashion, they oversee the staff. This is another form of governance. If the elder board is full of humble, godly people who put the congregation first, that's a healthy step. But if the elder board is the pastor's golfing buddies, well, good luck. In churches, the congregation is often an authority itself. They vote on bigger church matters. They approve elders. They approve budgets, that sort of thing. So many churches have three authority structures just within their walls, the staff, the board, and the congregation. Many churches and nonprofits have to make certain paperwork filings to the IRS each year. That's another institutional governance structure. Some churches are part of denominations. These come in all shapes and sizes, but to some degree, a denominational church has some responsibility and accountability to its denomination. It's another institutional governance structure. Then there are the watchdog organizations, such as the Evangelical Council for Fiscal Accountability, Ministry Watch, Charity Navigator. These are organizations that developed to provide further layers of accountability and transparency to the public by making certain requirements of churches and nonprofits, either through membership or some sort of rating system. So if you want to be attractive to larger donors, you need to be a member of these groups and work to conform to their standards so that you get a high rating. Well, how are the watchdog organizations managed? It depends on their structure, but they have executive staff and boards of some sort, and their own policies and procedures. So the next ironic question is, where are the watchdog organizations to hold the watchdog organizations accountable? Well, you get the point. There are already all sorts of systems and institutions in place to hold Christian organizations accountable. But as anyone with a two-year-old knows, if someone wants to abuse their power, they're going to figure out a way to do it and to hide it, regardless of how many systems are in place to prevent it. Human beings are highly inventive. And all these examples of institutional abuse have the same thing in common. The ruling people, the elites, go to varying lengths to protect the institution and their power, even at the expense of the individual. And this happens in Christian organizations all the time. Challenge number four. Institutions are slow to adapt and generally disinterested in doing so. Years ago, I had dinner with a Christian leader who at the time was a household name among many evangelical Christians. He was involved in a parachurch ministry that communicated and worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of churches across denominational lines. In the middle of our meal, I looked up at him and said, You know, I'm just curious. In all your years of ministry working with churches across the country and even across the world, give me one example of a church that took your message and your ministry to heart. Just one example of a church that reformed the way they served their congregation based on the tremendous effectiveness of your ministry. Without pausing, he replied, I can't give you one because there isn't one. I said, not one church? Why not? He said, because churches have become a type of business, and the senior pastor is the CEO of that business. If they fear that some sort of reform or change may negatively impact their business, they just aren't going to do it. It's a matter of self-preservation. The larger the institution, the more there is for leadership to protect. The more there is to protect, the less likely they are to introduce risk or change into the organization. Even though the world around us is changing at a breakneck pace due to technology and cultural trends and rapid changes to core ideas, Christian institutions are painfully slow to adapt. I'm not talking about watering down the gospel or changing doctrine. I'm talking about adapting to the social and cultural realities around us. And challenge number five. Large and megachurches exist and are driven by celebrity culture. And celebrities don't mix with us common folk. 
If you happen to go to a mega church, just ask yourself where the office of the senior pastor is located. Over my career, for various reasons, I've sat in a number of large churches, and the majority of senior pastor offices are buried in the guts of the church or off-site at another location. They are intentionally hard to get to, and there are layers upon layers of administrative assistance and schedules and other important matters to keep most of us out. If you're wealthy and give large checks to your church, you can probably get lunch next week. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to get on the senior pastor's schedule. I did have a good laugh on this point recently. I read an article about a high-profile celebrity megachurch pastor, the author of several purposeful books. He stood up to make a speech and claimed that he himself had trained no less than 1.1 million pastors, a figure he told the group that's more than all the seminaries put together. That's quite an accomplishment. So perhaps some megachurch pastors are more accessible than I thought. Perhaps they can disciple more than 12 people at a time. But in this age of celebrity worship, the Christian church tends to foster celebrities instead of pausing to ask why in the world we're doing this. We create new Christian icons out of pastors, apologists, musicians. We have our own award shows to compete with those secular Hollywood types. Instead of the Grammys, we have the Dove Awards. Instead of the People's Choice Awards, we have the K-Love Fan Awards. Instead of the Oscars, we have the Movie Guide Awards. Many years ago, I worked in Christian radio in Pittsburgh, and I hosted a weekend music radio show, so I had the chance to meet and interview a lot of bands and speakers. And there was one moment that really stood out for me. Because of my role, I was often asked to open up concerts by introducing the Christian musicians to the audience as they started the show. This also meant that Jess and I were allowed backstage to meet and greet the artists, which was a ton of fun. Normally, this process works like a cattle call. The musicians' handlers take a group of people wearing VIP badges, line them up in some sort of backstage area, and we sit and wait. When the artist is ready, they come into the room with other handlers, and they walk through the group of fans one by one, signing autographs and taking some pictures. At the appropriate time, the handlers grab the artist and rush them out of the room in order to get ready for the show. One time I was asked to open up a concert by introducing the main act, a musician named Michael Card. Some of you might know his music. He wrote the song El Shaddai, which Amy Grant turned into a huge hit. But this experience was entirely different. Jess and I wandered backstage to say hello to the band before the show, and Michael was sitting at a folding table finishing dinner with some of the other musicians. They had no idea who we were, but Michael saw us, stood up, came over and shook our hands and asked, Do you guys want some dessert? How about some apple pie? He then grabbed the knife and went over to the food table and cut us both slices of apple pie. We chit-chatted for a little bit, and then he left to get ready for the show. This experience stands out because it was so out of character from Christian institutions that churn out content for us to consume versus relationships for us to enjoy. This was the only time I met Michael Card, and I haven't spoken to him or seen him since. But for that five-minute period, he was a normal guy asking a normal couple if they wanted some apple pie. How very unlike a Christian celebrity. So based on these five challenges, it's a bit surprising that we continue to outsource our formation to these types of institutions. Public school is a great example. My wife and I are both products of the public school system. Both of our sons went through the public school system. I would have loved to have sent them to a Christian school, but I would have had to have mortgaged my soul. Many of us outsource our children's formative education to public schools. In some cases, we have to, even if we don't want to. We take the risk knowingly. We know that we're placing our kids in a culture where most of their time and habits and relationships and community may not reflect the ideas of the kingdom. And we hope and trust that our kids have been formed enough at home to navigate the public school waters. 
Some Christian parents then pay to send their kids to colleges and universities that also don't hold to the ideas of the kingdom of light. This one's a bit harder for me to understand because we usually have more choices in higher education than we do in primary education. Either way, some parents pay to have their kids sit in a highly formative culture that, in many cases, is intentionally unwinding the formative culture they created at home. So, go figure. Unfortunately, many marriages are being outsourced in the sense that the couple isn't intentionally creating a formative culture at home, a culture of time and life-giving habits and intimacy in a healthy community, while growing in the knowledge of each other. If we don't create a formative culture at home in our marriages, someone else will. Guaranteed. We love our institutions, and we generally outsource some of our heart formation to them, and we don't give it a second thought. This presents a great irony about what we call Christian consumerism. Christian institutions often make the charge against people who come to church simply to consume a 30-minute sermon, experience a weekend service, and take spiritual instruction without giving themselves to the work of the church. But if you look at the modern philosophy of evangelism, the tremendous time, money, and value placed on a weekly event with a 30-minute monologue, and the lack of emphasis most churches put on immersive spiritual formation, Christian consumerism is what the modern church is actually promoting. Then they turn around and condemn the people who are buying what they're selling. Let's draw two conclusions from the last two episodes and talk about where we go from here. Number one, the average American lifestyle competes with and works against the immersive spiritual formation we need to become more like Jesus. It works against deep discipleship. In general, the local church is not the center of our spiritual formation, though it certainly attempts to contribute in pieces and in parts. But most of us just don't really have a community focused on this deep discipleship. Number two, current Christian institutions are struggling in both numbers and, in some cases, character. The larger they get, the less personal they are, and the more concerned they become with their own protection. Instead of honoring, supporting, and discipling the individual, many modern churches have become institutions focused on hosting events and intentionally growing crowds. Ironically, all of this analysis presents some really, really good news. As culture continues to suffer terrible confusion and desperation, the body of Christ is wonderfully positioned to be set apart and to bear witness to our king in ways we've struggled to do for a few generations. But to do that, we need to take a very careful look at how our lives are ordered and what role Christian institutions play in our formation. It's pretty simple to do. We just evaluate our spiritual formation in light of the five key elements that we've been exploring. So let's talk about time. How much of our time is spent in intentionally becoming more like Jesus? If it's a small amount, we probably shouldn't be all that surprised if we aren't going to be more like him. Every other formative experience we've looked at places the formation itself as the top priority. Can the average American Christian reorder their lives so that our spiritual formation becomes our top priority? Well, sure, but not without sacrificing other things that consume our time. Does this mean we all need to quit our jobs and become monks? No. We live in an integrated world. Our careers are not segmented from our spiritual formation. They're part of our spiritual formation. Okay, what about habits? When we think of discipleship, we tend to think of our church habits, like corporate worship and prayer and devotions. But what about the rest of our habits? Are the rest of our daily habits ordered around our deep discipleship? Do we have a habit of looking for God in his second book, the book of creation? Are we intentionally looking for his character and his passion for us in a sunrise or the rain or a pet or flowers and plants? Are we habitually meeting with family and friends for the purpose of spiritual formation? 
Are we looking at the mundane daily habits as more than mundane daily habits, but instead opportunities to see God at work, to hear from him, to experience him, to have our ideas of darkness transformed into ideas of light? Do we have a habit of contemplation? Do we regularly and intentionally think? Are we exploring our own stories, our hidden ideas, our deepest desires? And how about intimacy? Based on what we learn in the Gospels, Jesus was constantly working to help people understand their hearts. He was consistently inviting people to dig under the surface, to uncover their true desires and point them to himself. He showed the rich young ruler what he really worshipped. He led the woman at the well to a far deeper understanding of her own identity. Jesus pressed Nicodemus far past his shallow legalistic view of religion into a conversation about the heart and new life and relationships. Is this how we build relationships? Do we invite people into our story? And do we invite them to share theirs? We live in a culture that very intentionally lives lives above the surface. Do we look for opportunities to go deeper and to build appropriate intimacy with transparency and vulnerability to lead to trust? And community. If our local churches aren't really set up to be our primary communities of formation, how do we build them? Certainly our families are essential to our formation, but a community is larger than just one family. How do we build a community of spiritual formation in a culture that works against it? Should we take a second look at geography? Is it important that we are physically located near our community? Can our local churches play a deeper role in this community? Should we look at rugged American individualism and how that philosophy has seeped into our hearts and minds? Perhaps we can create a better community with some creativity, some sacrifice, some intention. And instruction. Are we embracing milk or meat? Are we content to hear the same instruction repeatedly, or are we intentionally moving forward into more complex ideas? Christianity is filled with paradox and mystery. In some ways the gospel is simple, in other ways it's anything but. The more confused our culture gets, the more important it is that apprentices of Jesus are plowing ahead together into the deeper things of the faith. If this intentional progression isn't happening at church, where and how may we progress together? As I've wrestled with all this, two themes come to mind, simpler and smaller. How can we simplify our lives and how can we form much smaller communities of formation? If we're going to make deep discipleship our priority, we need to free up some time, reform some habits, find people who desire to delve into our stories in trusted relationships, and form tight communities of people who figure out how to live life together. Supersizing isn't working. In fact, it's hurting us as individuals and it's hurting Christianity. And it's driving some very wrong ideas about anthropology and the gospel and what it means to be Christian. Al Mohler often talks about the principle of subsidiarity. His comments are worth repeating here. Quote, the doctrine of subsidiarity, which emerged out of natural law theory, teaches that meaning, truth, and authority reside in the smallest meaningful unit possible. Subsidiarity is found in scripture where the family unit is honored as the most basic unit of society. Essentially, subsidiarity shows that the family bond is the most basic societal bond. If the family unit is deficient, no government can meet the need of its citizens. When the family is strong, government can be small. When the family is weak, however, the government must compensate for the loss. More involved fathers means less need for policemen. More two-parent homes, family stability, and marital fidelity means less need for a massive welfare system. 
These issues cannot be resolved unless the basic family unit God instituted for the perpetuation of humanity is honored and respected. Subsidiarity reminds us that the intervention that matters most and is most effective is the one closest to us. Solving the problem requires us to get as close to the problem as we can. That means focusing on the family. By focusing on the family, we respect and better the community. End quote. I was recently introduced to a man who was an elder at what used to be a large, fast-growing megachurch in Texas. The pastor of this church is a Christian celebrity. His sermons are heard worldwide, and the church has the normal media outlets on social media. The church used to be multi-site, popular church growth model where the senior pastor is broadcast on screens to church buildings in different parts of the state, or even the country. I was aware that this church had made the decision several years ago to move from a controlled model to an independent church model. They systematically took all of their satellite locations and basically set them free to become their own independent churches. That was a radical move and the opposite of supersizing. As I chit-chatted with the elder, I asked him how things were going at the church now. He said, well, we're the fastest shrinking megachurch in the country. That was the best news I had heard from a church official in a very long time. Simpler and smaller. I'll close with this short story. Jessica and I are friends with a couple who recently made some pretty dramatic life changes. I asked them if I could sit down with them and listen to their story. I wondered if this family had consciously or unconsciously come to the same conclusions we've come to hear about Western life and the institution of the church and the supersizing of modern Christianity. Years ago, our friends decided to homeschool their kids. That was a pretty radical change. Didn't start off so well, so they got together with a few other families and built their own co-op. That way the kids were still homeschooled, but the parents could work together for the best formative experience for their children. They had a traditional classroom setting, but they also spent quite a bit of time outside, in nature. The kids loved it, learned to connect their faith with God's second book, and developed some practical skills that most of us in suburbia have long forgotten. For the next few years, our friends prayed through several other life changes so they could make things simpler and smaller. Last year they found some farmland about an hour outside of town and they bought it. They sold their wonderful home in a great suburban neighborhood a few months ago and moved their family onto their land in a quieter, smaller community. They just moved in and are learning to be farmers. Their three kids are now learning to take care of the land along with their parents. They used to attend a mega church with a celebrity pastor they didn't know, but they traded that in for a small town congregation with a pastor who already knows their names and their story. It sounds like they're some of the youngest people in the church on Sunday, but they love that their kids are developing relationships with folks from older generations. The church doesn't have many programs and not much of a budget, but everyone lives within a few miles of the church building and they intentionally get together to talk about spiritual formation, the challenges in Western culture, and the value of being known. Educational formation at home, moving to a farm, leaving the mega church for a group of people getting together to help each other grow to look more like Jesus, simpler and smaller. Well, can everyone homeschool? No. Should everyone move to a small community and start farming? I would go broke and hungry if I tried that. That's not the point. The point is our friends realize that spiritual formation, deep discipleship, is immersion in a culture that's designed for that purpose. Our friends realize that this wasn't the life they were living or the church they were attending, and so they changed both. Was it easy? No. Their journey has had ups and downs, careers were put on hold, conveniences were left behind, and not everyone understood or even agreed with their decisions. But they have no regrets, and they are forming their own version of a culture of time, habit, intimacy, community, and instruction that's designed to help them all intentionally grow 
to become more like Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out soilandroots.org, and we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.